welcome to the latest edition of our GRC and Cybersecurity podcast. In today's episode in the leader of Cyber and Risk series, we have a very special guest, Jody Lash. In today's session, we're going to talk about continuous control monitoring, why it's important. We're also going to cover her love for sport and her career so far. Hi, Jody. Can you first introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about your career so far and the current company you work for? Absolutely, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, hi, everybody. Jody Lash. Uh, just before we get started, I just want to let you know everything I say today is my my opinions. Doesn't necessarily reflect my employer. Um, to that effect, you know, been in the industry now for about thirteen years. Spent about a decade in consulting for the big four, and I've done things like app development and testing, change and release management, IT service management, cybersecurity, resilience, GRC. Uh, tool implementations where I've kind of been around the block. And in the last four months, I've landed here at FanDuel where I'm working in their cybersecurity department. So uh, really exciting and new challenges ahead with the way that we do business, right? I've never worked in tech or sports gambling. I've always been married to a poker player. So, you know, in the last four months, as, uh, as he said, you know, you've joined the family business. Welcome. And so, you know, it's really been uh, quite fun to get to know FanDuel as a company, as well as, like I said, our broader brand uh, and divisions under Flutter. Fantastic. So before we get any further, one of the things that's always nice to know is like, what do you get up to outside of work? What hobbies, interests have you got? Well, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I love to do is collect art. So I think you could see a portion of Salvador Dali's painting behind me. So I love him. I love sports. Uh, avid NBA watcher, so really can't wait for the season to get started here. So that was awesome to, you know, come to a company that kind of marries my love of cyber with my love of sports. Uh, you can catch me gaming, video games with my husband, board games with my husband. So, you know, uh, spending time with my family is really key as well. So, you know, I, I have a lot of passions outside of the office. So I'm uh, also busy in volunteering. I volunteer with the women in cybersecurity. I'm a mentor as well as with um, the Cybersecurity Queens, the Cyber Queens podcast as well. Fantastic. And what teams do you follow in particular? So I'm a Clippers fan. So I live outside of Philly, but I'm a, uh, you know, an LA Clippers fan. And a lot of people ask, how'd you come about that? And it's because when I met my husband 21 years ago, he was a Lakers fan. And so I thought I'd take the rivalry <laughs> just to have a little <laughs> bit of a spice there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've stuck with the team over these 21 years, but he's since, you know, way, uh, become a way, uh, way weather fan of moving over to, you know, different teams. Now he's a Raptors fan. So not really a rivalry anymore, but uh, I do, I do support the Clips. Fantastic. Yeah. When, when I first met my wife, she, she hated football or soccer at that point. And she was like, nah, I'm going to, I'm a Liverpool fan. She's like, I'm an Everton fan. Now eventually come around to <laughs> following. AC Liverpool. Milan over here. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh. so I know you mentioned a little bit about your role. So can you talk about exactly what your role is and can you give an overview of how you got in your role? I know you mentioned you were a big four, but like, what was your career pathway? How did you get in that role? Is there a particular pathway that you, you took? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I've kind of, like I said, walked many paths across the way. And if you think about it, when you think about cybersecurity, right, there's a number of domains. And I just happen to have individual experiences across, uh, you know, across a number of them. And I've aggregated that into the role that I'm in today. But I'd have to say that my last position where I was at, uh, I was at an insurance organization and I grew from resilience leader to ITSM leader to then cybersecurity leader. And you're know, just kind of having that reputation of being the fixer, right? Hey, we know you can get it done and you can fix. And so, 
you know, when our previous CISO left and they had an interim CISO and then another leader in security left, right? They just, they had a lack of leadership in security and they said, you know what, you know, it might not be your your cup of tea, but we know you'll figure it out. We know you're smart. We'll know you'll get in and fix it. And so, you know, at my previous employer, I was running 80% of the cybersecurity organization. I had, you know, the red team, the blue team, GRC, um, you know, resilience as well. So I had a number of things underneath me. And so honestly, I just got thrown into it. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I've always joked that 10 years ago, I joked that I would never become a CISO because if you remember back back then, you know, you always saw CISOs in the news getting let go because of events. And I was like, oh, I don't want that job. That's high stress. So, uh, but yeah, last, about a year and a half ago, that just got thrown into that opportunity. And I joked with some folks that I didn't realize I was on the road to CISO the whole time and that my GPS was just recalculating until I got moved into that role and it was like CISO, you know, 50 miles out, <laughs> right? And so just, uh, you know, that's really how I got into it. And and this opportunity kind of sprung up and, I, you know, it's leveraging the skills that I had learned over that previous year's experience. And I was super excited to, like I said, marry sports and cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm, I can say I'm quite envious of that. <laughs> um, I guess one of the things I just wanted to pick up is on slightly different is obviously you went from consulting into this kind of role. How do you think like working in consulting helps you prepare for these? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things, right? Consulting gives you presence, ability to kind of take complex things and distill it down for folks who might not be as technical. It allows you to tell a story right, which is really key these days is that, you know, you can have technical skills, but if your business counterparts or folks don't understand why that technical is important, it's really hard to get that buy-in, right? And so I think consulting helps with that messaging. I think consulting is also a great career because you get exposed to so many different organizations and how they operate and how they work. And so you're able to kind of build the picture of like what good looks like for you from taking all the different pieces from other organizations, right? You're not just sitting in one position in one view. You get to see many positions, right? So, you know, in my 13 years so thus far, I've probably worked at, you know, 50 plus companies, which you don't get to do. Or, you know, if you do, you start to become a red flag to recruiters, right? Because you're jumping a lot. But, you know, the, the key thing was you get to hone a skill, right? I'm primarily focused on resilience most of my career. Uh, and just taking those practices into different organizations, you have to, like I said, you have to morph it to make it fit. So, yeah, I'd say that's probably why, how consulting helps. And then, you know, you build these trusted relationships with your clients and then they have a need to fill a role, right? And that's actually how I left consulting the first time. My uh, employer, my client was trying to fill a resilience role and they had recruited for a few months while I was still consulting for them and they were having no luck. And they just one day walked up to me and said, hey, would you do it? And, you know, at the time I was thinking about starting a family. So I was like, okay, maybe I want to get off the road for a little bit. And I took it and, uh, you know, my husband and I were like, oh, we're not really ready yet. So I went back to consulting, but, <laughs> you know, I think it's, I think it's partly, that's part of how you do it, right? You make a decision in your life that you maybe want to get off the road or, you know, you really like a client you're working with and you decide to go in house. And so that's what I've done actually twice. I left consulting the first time because they asked. And the second time I just wanted to really go help the client a little more hands-on. Fantastic. So, um, 
Can you talk to me a little bit about how you'd go about designing an effective security program? So I know you said, obviously, about uh, I want to talk more holistically. So all that experience, what are, what are the things that you focus on for for building a really effective security program? Yeah, I mean, step one, understand what are the requirements, right? Each industry has you know, what best, what good looks like, right? They have ISO or NIST or other frameworks out there that you should be following or that at least are giving you advice and guidance. So it's really understanding that piece. Understanding your customers is key. Uh, building the right teams, right? So, I mean, here, I'm, I know NIST. I know all the resilience frameworks. I know, um, you know, PCI for card processing, things like that. But, you know, I didn't have exposure to GLI before I got here, right? And so there's gaming regulations, there's different state regulations that we need to follow in order to build out the right things, you know, but to me, controls only get you so far, right? That gives you that compliance, that comfort, but you need to have confidence, right? And so really getting to an effective program is taking that compliance layer and moving towards the, we have it, we're confident in it, right? So if you think about, you know, anything with regards to controls or resilience or anything, it really comes down to testing. Have you tested it? Have you proven it out? Um, you can have a great design, but if you don't test its effectiveness, then you really don't have much, right? So, you know, for me, when I hear folks say, yeah, I do a tabletop exercise for my DR capabilities. I'm like, how do you know that the tool is actually going to be there when you need to fail over, right? So in order to do that, you need to actually fail over, push the button, right? So um, I think the biggest thing to get to effectiveness is testing. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit more about your role. So who do you report to and what are the capabilities that sit within your team and function? No, absolutely. So I report to FanDuel CISO, JJ Aga. He's awesome. And the capabilities on my team. So we've actually just rebranded our team, right? I really wanted to lean into the sports analogies. And so I renamed our team Charge, right? We're like, Gotta love basketball, gotta, gotta really lean in and uh, went with Charge because it's also evokes power, right? You think of like electricity and power and everything like that. But, you know, the things that that means is cyber health, right? So cyber risk, cyber GRC kind of elements. Um, a for awareness, so training and awareness sits within my team. R for resilience, couldn't couldn't lose my first love there. <laughs> G for governance, as I said, GRC policy standards all sit with me, and then E for entitlement. So I also an IGA, right? Our identity governance and access uh, reviews. So I call it the business side of security. Essentially, is what sits with me. Amazing. So. Where are you spending most time currently? So I know, again, more industry-wide. What are the things, the key priorities that you see the industry is focusing on right now? Well, I mean, just given it's October and it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, I'm, I'm spending my time there a lot. Um, you know, just really making sure that we're putting on a good program for all of our, our stakeholders and making sure they're enjoying it and engaging in it. Um, you know, recently just did a talk on cyber insurance, right? So thinking about the controls area and risk and like we were just talking about with effectiveness and making sure you actually have confidence in your program right understanding that insurance is a backup plan and so you know we want to make sure that we have the coverage that we need if anything happens right i'm sure you've read the news or seen you know seen the news lately um that ga some gaming organizations are having some big hits uh you know video game organizations direct competitors things like that and so they're on the rise and so that's part of it um, and then I've also been spending a lot of my time thinking about, you know, controls uh, assurance and continuous controls assurance and how do I automate that testing to ensure we have effectiveness and to ensure that we're at a good state, right? So I think the biggest thing I'm working on right now is 
uh, or the biggest thing I see in the industry is that move towards continuous and automated controls assessment. So just two things I want to pick up on before we, we, we kind of dig, dig a little bit into uh, CCM. But one of the things you said there, and I guess it's probably very different, is most of your organization are developers, I'm guessing. You've got a large amount. How, how is the training awareness? like? How is that different from maybe the other organization that you've worked with? I mean, secure code, secure by design, right? Shifting it left, making sure that folks understand or don't introduce vulnerabilities with any code deployments, right? Having persona-based training is key because you, to your point, you have general users, so everybody needs to know about security, but then you have your administrators, you have people with access to PII and customer information that might need to handle a little more sensitively. And then you have, to your point, developers, right? So you could be introducing vulnerabilities into the environment. So, you know, we, strive for uh, persona-based training to make sure that you have the training you need for your role, right? Why does security matter to you? Because I'm sure you've heard the moniker, security is everybody's job, right? But to what extent is it your job? And, you know, I sit in security, you know, and so I, I, I live and breathe it every day, but for somebody who doesn't, how does that impact you, right? So thinking about our customer support agents, people who are on the front lines taking calls from customers, people who, like I said, are coding, people who are doing this, Everybody has to have specific training, right? Customers are handling customer information, right? They take a call, you give them information. How do I handle that properly, right? So again, persona-based training is really key in those instances. Yeah, and, and it's the same even with policies and guidelines, isn't it now? It's like, just not, here's a, a thousand policies. It's like, please tell me what's important to my role so I know and I don't have to go and then make it as easy as possible for them to access what they need. Um, yeah. The second one was the cyber insurance. And, and one of the things I want to pick up then, have you seen, I guess, a change in maybe like four years ago, the questions you were asked? So the questions you're now being asked now by your by your provider? Yeah, I'd say insurance companies are getting smarter, right? They're, they're, they've probably hit, had a few losses and they said, okay, we need yeah. to make sure we're measuring this risk a little bit better. I mean, I've uh, recently just did hours and it was, you know, 400 questions, right? And um, so they definitely dig a little bit deeper. They want to know more so that they can assess it better. Um, you know, and then the other thing that we're seeing too is, or, you know, the thing that I see in the market in general, right, coming from an insurance company to FanDuel is you're seeing insurance companies pull out of risky areas, right? So, um, you know, you see the likes of um, Progressive and other teams leaving California because of wildfires and catastrophic losses. And, you know, if you continue to look at the numbers and you see how cyber events are increasing, right, the losses from ransomware and events are increasing, it actually makes me wonder, will there be cybersecurity insurance in the future, right? So, Although, you know, I see the teams getting smarter, I think they're also getting pickier on who they want to insure. And at the end of the day, you know, they're going to insure the teams who they feel have the most capable programs, right? So again, going back to that effectiveness, going back to that confidence in your capability. So at that point, if you actually have a really good capability, do you need insurance, right? So uh, It's a genuine thing, isn't it? Like I, we, I spoke to a CSM a couple of weeks back on the podcast and it was the same conversation he's having. He's like, well, if my premium gets to a certain point, I have a walk away point now where we have to have a sensible discussion going based on all the things I've got to jump through, which look, we're doing, but is it actually giving us the value for the cost? And I think it's, yeah. it's now starting to think of like a risk-based approach of going cyber insurance is difficult to get. It's expensive for all the reasons you outlined. I, I think a couple of years ago, the questions you were asked that I saw versus what you're asked now and you reconfirming it is extremely different. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be something that we're, I'd be intrigued to see over the next few years. Like, is that going to be something that people continue with? Is it something that even they're continuing to offer? Absolutely. I mean, again, your your capability is your first line of defense, right? Making sure that you actually have the right systems, people, processes in place is key. That insurance is is a backup. And to your point, to to your point about that person saying they have a walking away point, absolutely, right? There comes a point in time when you have that confidence in your capability, you know how to recover, you know how to move things forward, you have, you know, continuity in place, and you're confident and you're comfortable and it's tested. And so then to your point, why do I need to spend millions upon millions of dollars for coverage in the what if situation? Um, I think it's great to have if you have those concerns, but I do believe there are going to be a lot more folks who walk away. And then I also see the other side of it, too, where insurers or, or providers are going to walk away, too, because it is such a risky business. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. But there could be a time when there is no such thing as cyber insurance down the road. Yeah, I definitely can see that. So we spoke. you spoke about CCM. So the area that we're going to do a bit of deep dive on for listeners is continuous control monitoring. So do you mind just explaining to the listeners what is continuous control monitoring? And I guess... Why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're becoming so tech reliant. We're becoming, you know, things are getting faster. We're moving at different clips and paces. And so continuous control monitoring, right, is is getting more real time understanding of your posture with regards to how are you um implementing those in my world, right? In my world, it's implementing controls, right? So if we're thinking about GRC and the and the standards and policies we need to be a compliant with, right? Um, you know, thinking, think about SOC 2, think about NIST, think about ISO, think about your SOCs, ITGCs, right? These are all the, there's a very complex control landscape that organizations need to be in line with. And when you're only doing manual controls assurance testing, AKA internal audits or self audits of processes, that can take 90 days, right? You have to do your field work, your document review, do your reports. And by then your program has changed, right? So continuous control monitoring or that automated technical assurance is getting closer to real-time testing of your controls compliance on a on a dashboard level, right? So I'm able to say, hey, how am I doing against NIST? Scan my environment against those controls and say, okay, you're about 50% today, and then dig into that. And that's really, you know, why is it important? It's important because it helps us reduce risk faster and understand how to pivot. It helps us with increasing productivity, right? So now we can point our team's efforts, you know, do more with less, so to speak, and point our efforts on where we're seeing red. Um, and again, it gets results to us faster, right? That's that's really key as we, again, become more reliant on technology. We wanna move, move, move. You can't move unless you know what to do or move towards, right? So I think that's really where uh, CCM is gonna help us be quicker and, and implement. Yeah. I'm- I literally was talking about this the other day. It allows you to make risk-based decisions and pivot. Like, you know, that is a problem now and I need to go and fix it. I'm not waiting on this ad hoc audit that someone might have done or might not have done properly. And by the way, that's a critical security control that underpins all kinds of things. And it's like, oh yeah, we test it once a quarter. It's like, "Mm, maybe we should, we should maybe look at that a bit more because if that significantly changes our risk position and, makes it us more vulnerable we probably should know about that quicker right 
Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And then, then that allows the IA teams and, and the assessment teams to focus on emerging risks, right? You know, if you see something crop up like the move it vulnerability um, that popped up, right? The, you know, then you want to do an audit of like, how would we fare against move it or how would we fare against you know, the log4j's of the world and things like that. You can do those point in time assessments for things that are emerging because you know that you're consistent control framework is being monitored and watched and you haven't, you know, that confidence in your capability and you have that confidence in where you're sitting at a, you know, whether it's a green, yellow, red or percent complete or percent adopted, right? Whatever the measure you're using, but you have that dashboard of where am I sitting? Where am I at? And can I sleep at night? And, and I think one of the things here is like a lot of people are talking about this. So I, I know you're again on this journey, but like, if you uh, hearing all these problems going, this is definitely something we want to be doing. Well, how do you go about doing this? What what approach? How can you implement this kind of technology? Yeah, I mean, it, it really first question is buy versus build, right? What type of organization are people working in? You know, you mentioned before we're a bunch of developers, so for us, we have you know that ability to build it if we'd like to, or there's you know tools on the market out there that if they meet our needs, we can also leverage those as well. So I think you know listeners need to think about that part, right? What is your organization stance? Then the other piece is how fast do you want it, right? Again, buy versus build, <laughs> um, and, you know, and how fast do you need it? How fast do you want it? How complex is your environment? You know, a lot of tools that are already out there will have key frameworks. You know, NIST, ISO, SOC, SOC 2s, et cetera, already implemented GDPR, you know, flavor, whatever flavor of controls you need to follow. For, for the most part, they already have them kind of pre-designed into the tool. Uh, it's whether or not you have, you know, a complex or really customized control environment where you might need to do something beyond that. So, you know, when you think about going about doing it, step one of any tool implementation, what are your requirements? What are you trying to achieve? Right. Um, and then, like I said, the factors of like, do I buy versus I build? And if you decided to go buy, OK, great. Take your requirements to those vendors, do those demos, do proof of concept, make sure it actually works for what you're looking for. See it in see it in action and then and then go with it. Right. And then and then implement it into your environment and mature it over time. Right. I think that's a lot of don't boil the ocean. A lot of folks do that. They boil the ocean, right? Pie in the sky. These tools, they could do so much, so they have to do that much at my at my team, right? No, start with the use cases you have, right? Make sure you have use cases. I've also seen that too, where folks just go in and buy something and then it doesn't actually do what they want it to do, right? So start with, start with the basics. What are my requirements? Find a tool that meets those, implement it for those use cases and those use cases only, and then mature it over time. And with that recipe, you're bound to, you know, have a good experience with tooling and have, you know, you're not going to call somebody and say, oh, I have tech debt now, or I've over-customized this thing. I can't upgrade it. Oh, you know, I can't bring this new team on board because they want to use a field a different way, right? So I think that's really the key thing is know where you want to go, but start small and grow to that. You're preaching to the comfort here of someone who did implementations of this technology and then also like now product for this kind of thing, but it's be realistic, right? Pick yeah. the, the big ticket items that you can get quick wins. Okay, right, we align to this framework. This is the area we think we get the most value because I mean, there's really easy ROI on this. You can look at how many people you assign just to collect evidence for these things, how many control owners you've got. If you can reduce that by 20% in the first year, think of the amount of hours you're adding back to the business. I think it's really clear for this one to go, 
And that's just man time. And then you can then go, well, actually, we're making better decisions, more effective decisions, and we can pivot quicker. So for me, it's like there's so much value in this kind of technology. Well, and focus on your most critical risk and domain, right? So for some organizations, that might be financials, that might be cybersecurity, that might be X, right? So, you know, piecemeal it. You can always, you know, use somebody as your pilot, right? So go in with security first because that might be your highest risk. Implement the controls around security, then move into business, right? Move into other things like that. And so, and then the other thing too you have to realize is that in order to do CCM, the data needs to be available, right? The process or things need to be automated or there needs to be technology enabled. You can do, you know, it with uploads and things like that, but is that really where you want to be? So look at your environment that way too, right? To your point about quick wins, what is already automated? What logs, tools, things are in place to help drive some of those controls and establish that first, right? And then work with the business or work with other users to start to get their processes in a more automated fashion into a tool where you can have data generated and then onboard them into CCM, right? Um, Again, so many different ways to kind of cut that, to kind of cut that one up, but um, that's really a thing I'm thinking about, or, you know, as I kind of look at this bigger problem, you know, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? Well, where do you take that first bite? Yeah. So I kind of, kind of, you've, you've, you've said, I mean, I guess why it's important, but like, if you weren't looking at this now, why should you be? Is there any key things, like two or three things where you go like, look, this is, this is why it can make such a big difference. I mean, I think a couple of things, right? One, a lot of companies want to do more with less, right? So you were just mentioning, right? You know, what, how can I, how can I best use my people, right? We talk about automating processes so that we can have leaner teams. This is the same thing. We're just doing it within our GRC, our IA and our assessment teams, right? It's enabling them to be better. Um, How do we also, um, you know, kind of focus towards doing, uh, can I curse? (laughs) Doing doing cool shit, right? (laughs) You know, I don't want to do monotonous things over and over and over again, right? I want to do cool shit. I want to help my customers out, right? And so if I can have you know, a tool looking at these items, right, then I can be more collaborative, more consultative and assess, like I said, those emerging risks as they pop up. So, you know, if you're not looking at it now, I mean, and you want to be thinking about it, it's one of those things where it's going to help you sleep better at night, right? And I like sleep. (laughs) I I think we've all got people who, anyone who has to go and collect all that evidence go, Okay, can you collect this log to show that this happened? Can you do this? Can you check that MFA is enabled on this application? It's like, okay, we, I'm sure we could just get an API to call that and confirm that. We do not need yeah. to be at, and it's worse yeah. when it's like you haven't got an aligned framework because the same guy might be asked nine times by nine different people. It's like, can you show me evidence? And he's like, well, security, what are you doing? Why do I keep asking the same question? That's a perfect point too, right? It's not just the efficiencies you're going to gain within the assessing teams. It's allowing the business or the first line to just do their job. Let them go be, you know, in security and do what they need to do. Let them go be in the business and do what they need to do and stop distracting them, right? I mean, that's that <laughs> that in and of itself is amazing, right? That self-service element of it where, you know, I'm always giving the same evidence over and over and over again. How can I make this better? How can I make this easier? And you know, that's one of the key things I've challenged my team on is how can we be better partners? And so I see CCM as that allowing us to do that, right? Because 
we've talked about it before. It allows us to pivot quickly, know where we need to go, and only tap the people that we need to be tapping versus you know, kind of doing a, a shotgun blast and just widespread, right? It's more targeted, more focused, and we're able to we're able to close gaps where we need to be closing gaps versus I don't know where to go. So I'm going to start with this person and then they go to this one and play the game of telephone until I find the right person. And, and you're not wrong about, you know, nine people, right? Cause you know, as you can imagine working in uh, you know, a large company, right? We have third, second line, you know, your third line, your second line, your, your one and a half line, the embedded group, right? Everybody's looking at things and they're looking at the same things. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. If we can kind of cut down that asking for evidence piece by just using the things that are generated right from the tools, um, and we all can look at the same dashboard, right? We Not only are we going to be faster, we also create transparency and trust between the lines, right? And that, I think you've probably have seen that before too, where, you know, the first line doesn't want to tell things to the third line because they don't want to be, you know, <laughs> penalized down the road, right? And that's, that's also really, a, CCM also helps with building that relationship, right? And, and allowing for that transparency. Great. So... Let's move a little bit more onto, I guess, broader broader view. So what you're doing at the moment that you think is really working and maybe what's not? You know, I mean, what am I doing at the moment? Like I said, Cybersecurity Awareness Month, baby, it's it's it's, it's front and center. Um, it, you know, what am I doing? I mean, right now, like I said, I'm four months into FanDuel. Um, really, I'm, I'm helping build the brand. I'm helping build that awareness of you know, cybersecurity, my team, myself, I'm here, I'm here to help, I'm here to partner, here's how I can help and how I can partner. Um, so, you know, thinking about my, my role and kind of what I'm doing in the organization, it's really just that. I'm um, helping to try to bring my thoughts on what good looks like and coaching guide the next people, right? Not only internally to my organization, but also the people that I mentor, right? How can I help them understand that, you know, I get that question a lot, like, how did you get where you are, right? And it's, you know, I listen to good leaders, I read, I do different things, right? So, you know, I'm working on continuing to better myself and better the people around me and make us more cyber security aware and just in work, in professional settings and personal settings, right? So, you know, I if I see something that I think clicks for, you know, I have young nieces and nephews, right? They're in going to live in the digital age. I, I didn't quite live in the full digital age, right? But they are, and, you know... How can my family keep them safe? How can they be safe when they're using um, different applications and different things like that? Coordinate, you know, collaborating with strangers in, Ro <laughs> in Roblox, right? Like, and just kind of making sure that that information gets out there and people understand that security is everybody's job, not just in the workplace, but at home too. Fantastic. So biggest challenges, what are you seeing as the biggest challenge for the industry for the next 12 months? For, for the industry, I mean, I think being in tech and being such a customer-facing organization, every anybody who is customer-facing, right, it just, it's that rise, man. Their cyber threats are, they're get, attackers are getting smarter, right? They're using technology. I mean, I was actually just having a conversation with somebody the other day that, you know, it's no longer one-on-one, -on -one, right? You know, hacker versus internal defense person where, you know, who's who's better on the keyboard, right? It's hacker plus thousands of bots, right? So, you know, I, I was I was using a basketball analogy. I'm like, yeah, you're playing one-on-one, -on -one, right? You're guarding your hoop. Well, now you got the whole five-on-one, -on -one, the whole team's coming at you, right? What do you do, right? And so I think, it's, I think the biggest challenge is, you know, one is trying to make sure, how do you keep up with the adversaries, right? You have to stay in that know and um, don't get comfortable, right? Do like 
the biggest challenge right now is some folks get comfortable and you know with technology with things changing at the rate in which they change you can't you know it's it's you can't you have to be an early adopter you have to stay on top of the on top of the curve Thank you.